that's a lot closer to my face now and it's making me feel slightly uncomfortable. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Glass of Seawater. Uh, my name is Charlie Vincent, um, you would have heard me before on a few other podcasts and I'm joined today by Will Tricky, a host before. Hello. And Phil Bradford, a guest who we haven't had for a long time. Hi there, yeah, nice to be back. <laughs> and we have another very special guest um, who I will let introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Ricardo Betti, I'm a professor at the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York, USA. And uh, I'm here to talk about uh, laser fusion. Um, so I've been told that you've actually won uh, a few awards. Um, what awards are they and what sort of work did you uh, win them for? Yes, so I won uh, two, two major awards. Uh, one is called the Edward Teller Medal. Uh, Edward Teller is the father of the H-bomb. And uh, uh, this is an award uh, that is given for uh, uh, contributions uh, in uh, inertial confinement fusion uh, because H-bombs uh, uh, work uh, using the principle of inertial confinement. And, uh, and then uh, the uh, Ernest Lawrence Award, uh, which is an award given by the U.S. Department of Energy for research in plasma physics. Oh, wow. Um, I'd like I'd like to point out at this point we're also an award-winning podcast now, not not oh, quite are, as yeah. distinguished distinguished awards, but uh, as of last week. Yeah, so last week we were at a plasma physics conference and um, we won an outreach award for oh, the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. So, so many awards <laughs> around the table. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful! Congratulations! Um, <laughs> Thank you. So. Predominantly, you've worked in ICF, and that's certainly what... I actually worked in fusion in general, plasma physics, uh, in the uh, early times, and actually in up to the middle of my career, I worked uh, uh, roughly 50-50 magnetic confinement and uh, in inertial confinement, And uh, but uh, because I assumed more responsibilities within the, uh, my institution and the program in inertial confinement, now my, the time is mostly like 90% inertial and 10% magnetic. So, mm. Oh, really interesting. Um, so we've done episodes on inertial confinement before, but um, if we could just get a quick reminder, Phil, like what, what would you say were the key points of inertial confinement? Um, what makes fusion inertial confinement fusion? Well, I suppose uh, what, what makes it inertial confinement fusion is that you're keeping your fuel together um, basically by relying on its own inertia rather than using some external means like magnetic fields to sort of keep all of your fuel and your plasma in one place. Because you want to keep your fuel together for as long as possible um, to maximise the amount of fusion reactions and the heat that you can generate. Um, so with the inertial scheme, you're basically... Um, well, there, there, there are two schemes within it, but you're basically compressing your fuel with shock waves um, and then it, it, it compresses and reaches a hot spot where you get um, really very high temperatures and um, your fuel overcomes like the electrostatic repulsion force and uh, fusion can start. Um, so it, it relies essentially on, on you reaching a sort of threshold of, of, of hot spot temperature where your fuel can then start um, burning itself like out um, through the outer layers of cold fuel and then you can get these really high fusion yields. So. Brilliant. And this compression, uh, how, how is that usually done? Uh, so we've got t two driving mechanisms uh, that we'll, we'll talk a bit about both today. So the first one, uh, the most simple one, well, we're always using a laser as a driver. 
well, actually, we're not always using a laser as a driver, but today we're going to be talking about using a laser as a driver. Uh, so in a facility like Omega, the facility that uh, Ricardo works at, uh, we shine the lasers directly onto a capsule and compress it uh, through the plasma expansion that's generated by the heating. Um, the other alternative way of doing that is we first convert our lasers into x-rays by shining onto a high density material such as gold, uranium, something like that. So we surround our fuel with a uranium shell called a holrome. Uh, that uranium shell or gold shell is heated up by the lasers, produces x-rays and those x-rays drive our capsule and that tends to be more um, symmetric. That's something we call indirect drive. And indirect drive is the, is the route we use on the largest scale uh, ICF facility, the National Ignition Facility, which we'll call NIF from now on, I assume. So, Ricardo, you've had the most experience working on these machines, I, I assume. Seeing as <laughs> you guys, you two have only been in the field for a couple of years. Um, can you like really enunciate for us what the main differences between a facility like Omega and the National Ignition Facility are? Mm-hmm. So first, let me tell you that uh, I'm a theorist, actually. I'm not an experimentalist. Mm. So actually, I don't touch the lasers. Mm. And you don't want me to touch the lasers because uh, <laughs> they won't survive. Um, so, But of course, I, being a theorist, uh, that doesn't mean I'm isolated working in my office. I work with experimentalists. They do experiments on the facilities. Omega is a big laser, uh, is, uh, used to be the largest laser in the world until NIF uh, uh, became, uh, uh, was commissioned in 2009. And uh, it's, uh, um, it's a pretty impressive laser if you are a visitor uh, and you go and see the Omega laser. There is a beautiful viewing gallery uh, that uh, you have to climb up uh, the stairs and then from the viewing gallery you see the laser underneath and it's pretty impressive. There is a big target chamber with this uh, three meters in diameter, and uh, uh, the, the laser uh, bay is on the opposite side, uh, has 60 beams, each beam uh, um, has, uh, about produces about half a kilojoule of uh, laser light, and so times 60 is about 30 kilojoules total. Uh, this is a UV light, uh, ultraviolet light, and uh, uh, is produced uh, over a time that is very, very short. Uh, it's about two billionth of a second. And uh, um, uh, the NIF laser is a much bigger facility. Uh, it takes about 20 minutes to walk from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's the size of three football fields. Uh, American football fields. American football yeah. fields. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's a much more powerful laser. Uh, is in terms of power, which is energy per unit time, uh, the NIF laser is about 20 times more powerful than Omega laser. In terms of energy, it's about 70 times uh, more energy than the Omega laser. So it delivers the energy on a longer time scale. It's about 20 nanoseconds, 20 billionth of a second. And uh, uh, it is the same light, it's ultraviolet light, uh, and uh, it is uh, much more expensive uh, than uh, the Omega laser. So the Omega laser was built uh, uh, on a budget of about $100 million uh, in today's dollars. Mm. Uh, the, the NIF laser is about uh, 3 or to $4 billion. Mm-hmm. So, so the scale is very different. And uh, so therefore, what the, the implications are that if you're doing experiments on NIF, you really need to know what you're doing because <laughs> yeah. you're dealing with a machine that costs so much money uh, and every part is uh, super expensive to mm. replace. 
So, but even on the Omega laser, you need to know what you're doing. And indeed, uh, there is a group of engineers, even at Omega, that uh, does things for you and technicians. Uh, so students that come and do experiments on Omega, they actually don't touch the Omega laser. Mm. So theorists like myself don't touch it, and they shouldn't touch it. And the students <laughs> uh, also that do experiments, they're not allowed mm. to touch it. Uh, and there are technicians and engineers uh, that do everything for you. So you design your experiments, they'll set it up for you, and you show up the day of your shots, you mm. get the shots done, and uh, usually the shots are done well, <laughs> uh, in a sense, uh, most of the time there is some hiccups here and there, but uh, for the most part, the mega laser is uh, like a, a, you know, a Swiss clock, it just works well. So. Mm. Um, so today you gave a really interesting talk, and this is coming from someone who does instrumentation, mm. so <laughs> I found it accessible, yeah. like couldn't be further away from uh, theory, uh, <laughs> um, but I really enjoyed it. Um, talking about reaching ignition conditions on the National Ignition Facility, which we'll call NIF from now on. Right. Um, so what can you define for us exactly what this ignition parameter is and how we, how we learn what we measure mm -hmm. to be able to say, oh, we've reached ignition? Yes, it's actually a very simple analogy is uh, the ignition of gasoline fuel, right? Uh, so the way every uh, internal combustion engine works, uh, especially if you use uh, uh, gasoline as a fuel, is that uh, you inject uh, a mixture of air and gasoline inside the cylinder of the engine, and then uh, you ignite that uh, fuel with a spark. And the spark comes from the spark plug. And, uh, you know, sometimes it happens that uh, uh, your spark plugs are old and uh, the fuel doesn't ignite and uh, you know that you have to replace your spark plugs because you had a problem starting your car. Mm. So that's the case where uh, your spark plug is not doing a good job by making a spark that is good enough to then ignite uh, the rest of the fuel. So because the spark is just the beginning, it's a little ignited part of the fuel that is supposed to be well ignited to igniting, propagate the burn through the rest of the fuel and so all the fuel in the cylinder start, uh, ignites and burns. Uh, so pretty much igniting uh, fusion fuel is very similar process. So the fusion fuel, instead of having chemical ignition like in a gasoline fuel, we're talking about the nuclear ignition. And so because nuclear reactions produces a lot more energy than chemical reaction, roughly a factor of a million times more per reaction, uh, then we, a lot more energy density is involved in nuclear ignition rather than chemical ignition. But the process uh, is, uh, uh, is similar. Uh, you have uh, a fuel that uh, produces energy by fusion reactions. The fusion reactions uh, produces also heat that is in the form of uh, first the kinetic energy of the reactants, um, of the, sorry, the reaction products, and the reaction products, the kinetic energy then is converted into heat of the uh, fuel around it. And then as you, if you can produce enough heat that the fuel then gets hotter and therefore produces even more heat because the heating rate depends on the temperature, then the hotter it gets, the more energy produces, then you can get into a kind of a, a spiral where things get out of control, and that's what you want. You want things to get out of control, mm. the old fuel to ignite and burn, and making a, a lot more energy output than you used to heat up the fuel in, uh, to start with. So seeing it in that analogy sort of 
ignition's that point where you're just adding more fuel, no more heat to the system, and it's self-sustaining. But we can't really do that in ICF because we've got these small yeah. fuel capsules that we have to repeatedly in, in, inject. But sort of analogous, but... So asking a leading question here. So it's that, that measure of heat that you get when your fuel burns. Um, are there, is there anything else that you can measure to tell you that, oh, you have achieved ignition? Um, what other fusion products are there? Well, so you can measure the neutron um, products that come out of the, the reaction. They all have a very well-defined energy, um, and we know precisely like how many neutrons you expect for a, for a given fusion reaction. So if you just count how many neutrons come out, you can say, ah, we've done this much fusion. Um, and you can say whether you've ignited or not. Um, and so ignition would be really great, especially for energy-producing reactors. How close are we um, to reaching that point of ignition and... Um, getting energy out of ICF? Yeah, I get uh, the question a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, we get it. And, uh, MCF uh, yes. well. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, with every experiment where you're doing this for the first time, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's difficult to be able to give an accurate estimate on, uh, you know, how, f how far in terms of time scales we are from achieving ignition. Uh, we can tell in terms of uh, physics scales how far we are from ignition. So for instance, to give you an idea, let's say that uh, we have an imp the implosions that we do now, um, they are compression of capsules that leads to pressures that are uh, hundreds of billions of atmospheres, uh, temperatures that are about uh, uh, 50 million degrees centigrade. So if we could increase the pressure by roughly 50%, that would be enough uh, for these implosions to ignite. So we are not uh, 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 orders of magnitude away from the conditions of uh, ignition. Uh, we are factors of 50% or so in terms of relevant physics parameters. So I don't want to underestimate the difficulty in getting 50% more pressure. It's a difficult thing to do, but it's, uh, it's, uh, there is uh, nothing uh, from current experiments that uh, lead us to think that uh, we cannot achieve this extra boost, extra 50% with current facilities, that we need a new laser or we need something much better. Uh, it may well be that just stay the course and improving the performance of the implosions as we are doing now may be enough in a year, two years, or three years, start to tell, to achieve that the ignition conditions. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting point. It quite, sounds quite optimistic as well, that we don't necessarily have to scale up what we've got already, we can achieve it. I think uh, one thing that I would say, and it's nice to bring up at this point, is that we're measuring fusion on these machines every time we do, every time we do it. When, we're in the right sort of regime, we're getting close to that point. Um, but it's it's very much a jumping off a cliff point. As soon as, when you get ignition, there's a lot of ramping up in everything you see. So hopefully we'll mm -hmm. see, when we, if we get closer and closer, it'll get faster and faster, and we can hopefully just reach that, reach that cliff point where we jump off and there's loads of fusion. It's also, I think, one of the things that was nice about your talk earlier, because quite often they talk about whether ICF was successful or not by the amount of neutrons you're getting. And obviously, because we haven't reached that sort of step threshold of ignition, 
the new the neutron yields we're getting is like minuscule compared to what you would expect from an, an, an actual ignited right. implosion. And, you know, we can go back to the analogy of the of the car engines, right? If you have a, a bad spark plug, your car doesn't your car doesn't start. That doesn't mean that you have to throw away your car, <laughs> yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You need to replace the spark plug, and then it will work. Yeah. So, uh, so, so it could be okay. It's hard to tell because we don't know exactly <clears throat> how to get that extra fifty percent. Uh, because if we knew exactly how to do it, we have done it, <laughs> we've done it right? So it could be a small improvement here and there. But uh, it could be as simple as changing the spark plug. It could be that there is one factor. There could be there are many effects that could prevent that fifty percent to come through. Mm. And but it could be that there is one determining factor that we haven't found yet, that we haven't identified it yet. That if we fix it, the whole thing is going to work because we are not that far away. If you are order some money to the way, mm. then you can think of well, I have to throw away my car with all the spark plug because this is never going to work. But instead. You know, it doesn't look like it is that way. Of course, in terms of physics parameter, we are rather close, but we are not there yet. And uh, it just, I think, staying the course is probably the best way we could do. So one of the really interesting outcomes about your talk today was this um, tripling of the yield at Omega. and, but you also mentioned that your simulations don't always work quite as well um, as they do. I was wondering if you could like take us through that process of tripling the yield mm. while the models and the tools that you use to advise on experiments aren't necessarily as useful as you would like. Right. So this is, uh, uh, you know, I thought about uh, um, you know, it kind of in general terms of uh, how, so do you, we don't know all the physics uh, of uh, laser fusion. Uh, and uh, and therefore, you know, even though we have wonderful uh, simulation tools, um, that simulation tools are approximate uh, because the physics is so complex that they will take a while before we have first principle codes that can describe all the physics that goes into a laser fusion experiments. And this is uh, true for many different aspects, uh, many aspects of uh, today's physics or complex systems. Uh, you know, I can think, for instance, uh, climate modeling. It's another, cl- climate is a complex system and modeling of climate uh, also require very sophisticated uh, simulation tools. And, uh, and uh, um, so when you have a complex system, well, the best thing, uh, that's one of the advantage of, uh, you know, laser fusion with respect to, say, climate, is that we can do experiments in the lab. You know, climate is a little harder to do experiments. You can, can change the climate uh, at will. <laughs> uh, so we can do experiments in the lab, and uh, under, you know, these experiments change input parameters and change and see how the system responds. Uh, but since the system is so complicated, uh, the reaction of the... Uh, of uh, the changes in the system when you change an input parameter is very complicated. There is not a linear reaction that you change a little bit one thing and only one other thing changes. Everything responds to that change. And so then you had to ask yourself, if you have a complex system and you have input parameters, but the relation between input and output is very complicated, uh, then is there any way that you can read the output that you have up to today? So based on past experiments, to point you into the, the directions on what changes to make in the future to improve the performance that you have. 
And so since a complex system reacts in a very complex way, to read those, I call it gradients, because to read where to go, what changes to make, is not obvious. Mm. And so you need somehow a tool that can read it for you. And so that's why we develop uh, this kind of statistical, we call it statistical mapping, is a way to read the data of complex systems to point you into the direction of changes that needs to be made in order to improve the performance in the direction that you want to go. Just to add to that, I think an easy way to crunch through that sort of in my head, we all remember years ago uh, in secondary school, high school, when we used to just do a graph of lots of points, X and Y, and we draw a straight line through all, uh, trying to get the best fit of all those points. We're essentially not doing anything drastically different to that. It's just much more complex. And instead of just X and Y, you have a Z direction and you also have another direction and another direction, another direction that you couldn't even fit uh, in three dimensions. Uh, but it's essentially, it's just crunching through the numbers, trying to find where the sharp gradients are and where the best routes to improvement are. So, yeah, that's a really great explanation. Um, yeah, sort of like getting your head around how you mix all these different parameters together to come out with a prediction. Um, yeah, I really like that. Oh, and just to um, say, I've, just to let's highlight the fact that uh, this, so on the Omega laser, this approach has been applied and one of the most significant results in ICF, uh, well, we're only early in the year, but probably in this year is that we, uh, the, using this approach, uh, the fusion yield was tripled out of experiment, not just simulation, out of experiment. Um, so this really does work um, and it's a promising development route for the future. So this result is really, really great. But as I understand it, the Omega laser is too small to reach ignition. Um, and so to get ignition, you really want to be moving these experiments to NIF. Um, but NIF is a very coveted machine and the repetition rate for um, experiments. So the number of experiments you can do is a lot slower. How do you go about scaling the results from Omega so that you know what experiments to do on NIF so that you can use your time most efficiently? Right. So, uh, you know, being a smaller facility uh, than NIF, uh, one of our tasks is to translate the results that we get at Omega, uh, translate it to NIF size. Uh, because eventually the fusion experiments that are supposed to achieve ignition will have to be at the size the, the, of NIF. So we will need also megajoules of laser light to ignite a capsule. Uh, and uh, the kilojoules of laser light that we have on Omega, it won't be enough. So every time we do an experiment on Omega, we had to translate that performance and NIF size. So the question that we had to answer is that, uh, what if uh, this experiment was done with two megajoules of laser light instead of 30 kilojoules of laser light, how much more fusion you will be getting? And uh, would this experiment ignite if done with two megajoules of laser light? So that's what we call scaling. So we basically implode a capsule on Omega and then uh, we scale it to NIF energy to see how well it will perform with two megajoules of laser light, which is the energy of NIF. And uh, um, so when we do that, uh, we find uh, that uh, we actually, the performance on NIF scale would be a very interesting performance. Uh, so the best implosions on Omega would not ignite right now on NIF scale, but uh, it wouldn't be that far from ignition. Uh, and, uh, and that is something that, uh, you know, for us is very important. Now, as you said, 
doing experiments on NIF is very, very expensive. Uh, the shot rate is very slow. So one has to have a very good, uh, um, I would say, record and uh, um, very good motivation to do these experiments uh, at NIF scale. If we do experiments at NIF scale, we will also require some changes to the hardware. So once we do Omega experiments scale to NIF, will require some changes, not much, but uh, because uh, uh, you know, NIF is a very expensive laser, so when I say not much, it means uh, maybe $100 million, <laughs> okay? So, so it would be a significant amount of money. So in order to get that support, uh, we need to motivate it. And so to motivate that, we need to execute an experiment at Omega scale they went translated, and the translation right now is purely theoretical because we are not doing experimental scale on NIF. Uh, when we translate it theoretically, we show theoretically that it would ignite. So the first thing to do is to get the best possible implosions on Omega, then demonstrate that theoretically at least that, that implosion would ignite with two megajoules of laser light. Then once we do that, we would have a good enough argument to uh, request the funding agency to give us the $100 million or so uh, to make the hardware changes and NIF to then execute these experiments on NIF scale.